When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Sam from Future Islands. You're listening to episode 100 of the LSQ podcast. Hi, I'm Jenny Ellisky. Welcome to a super special episode of the LSQ podcast. And not just because it's the 100th episode, although I gotta say, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that and so grateful to all of the artists who've given their time and been open to this conversation, but also because this is one of my favorite interviews in the series so far. I've been a deep admirer of Future Island's music and Samuel T. Herring's soulfulness and poeticism as a singer and writer since the band's early days, and I love getting to hear him share so many meaningful facets of his creative journey in this interview. We talk about the new Future Islands album, one of their finest yet, People Who Aren't There Anymore, but also about some of his recent work on his own, the music he's been releasing as Hemlock Ernst, and his recent acting role in the Apple TV series The Changeling, and a lot more. So let's get it going. Thank you so much for listening to episode 100 of the LSQ podcast. Welcome to the LSQ podcast. I'm taking off my shoes. If you saw, I just lo- I just went down a level. I took off my shoes too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the occasion that brings us here on the LSQ podcast is this new Future Islands album, People Who Aren't There Anymore. And uh, I love it. I was listening to it this morning. Thank you so much. And enjoying the fuck out of it. But also it's it's been kind of a busy season for you even outside of that. So I want to mention at the outset too, because you just had a Hemlock Ernst project come out this fall yep. as well, which is something that, um, you know, people who are only casually aware of Future Islands might not might not necessarily be as familiar with or aware of. And also just, you know, as the acting thing, the Changeling, yeah, um, yeah. the Apple TV series, which also, we're, for listeners, we're recording this in, in December. And uh, so it's just been within these past couple of months that those extra Future Islands things have been have been going on for you. So, I, I mean, all of that is to say, how how are you feeling? How is, how has this season leading up to this Future Islands album been for you? Obviously, there's been some different stuff in the mix while you're waiting for the album to come out. Yeah, well, it is. It's always a funny. It's always a funny time when you you know turn in a record and the, for the release of the record. I think any musician will tell you that you know it's just this weird waiting period because um, because you really want to 
get it out and start playing the songs, you know, and you just kind of have to wait. And, and uh, there has been all this other, these other things happening. It's really funny because as much as I do, I'm always just on myself thinking that I'm not doing enough, which is probably what, <laughs> what leads you to be, <laughs> to being like, I put out, you know, two albums and I, I, there's actually a third Hemlock uh, or there's a, there's going to be another Hemlock record in uh, probably the late spring of next year as well. So, so it is a really busy time, you know, and really, because 2022 was a really busy period, which, you know, speaks to people who aren't there anymore because the end of 21 and kind of the easing of the pandemic uh, state of the world was, uh, you know, I, I went through a breakup with a partner because of the pandemic, or that was a big part of the reason that we split was all that distance and, and, uh, and things. And so in 22, I was trying to figure out life and just feeling like I was exploding with words and emotions and feelings and, and needing to put them somewhere. So, you know, the, the acting thing kind of came at a funny time when if I had gotten approached three months earlier, I wouldn't have done it. But it was because of the fact that I didn't know what my life was for a minute, you know, and, and returning home to a place that I thought that I was leaving and having to swallow that pill. I had to also be like, well, let's do, let's go to work, you know, and see what happens. And then all of a sudden this came across my plate and I gave it a shot and I ended up getting this part. And yeah, I, I didn't go out for an act for acting jobs. I was, uh, I got approached because of Future Islands, you know, uh, the writer of a show saw us perform uh, the end of 21 and was like, I think that's the crazy asshole I needed my TV show. And it turns out it was. So <laughs> they didn't know if they were crazy or if I was crazy, but but it ended up working out. And, and that was a really interesting experience. But, you know, in retrospect, it's something that I, <laughs> I, I was talking about the other day. It's almost like I don't really remember that it happened. It's just, it's kind of something that happened to me while I was going through my own, my own turmoil, you know, um, and it was a place for me to to lay my emotions in a in a positive way and and explore something new, a new part of myself, then that that gave me a lot of confidence, you know, just on stage on stage in general. That was really cool. And then with the Hemlock record, like that thing has been, some of those songs are nine years old, eight years old. You know, it was a record I put out with my buddy Hype Keach, who is a longtime Baltimore MC producer, and uh, he reached out to me in the pandemic to be like, hey, I've been you know, producing more, maybe we could do something. We wrote a couple songs and then they were like, well, what do we do with them? And I was like, well, you know, I have like 22 unreleased songs that don't have homes. Maybe we could do something with that. So I sent him stuff. And you know, this, this is what happens when you're making music a lot, you know, uh, you know, somebody sends you some stuff and wants you to write for them, a producer uh, across dif different genres for me. And then they, you know, they disappear or the song doesn't make their album and then you, or, you know, the, the feature doesn't work out and then you are just left with all these like orphaned verses or whole songs, you know, because a, a lot of the album was, was stuff I did for a project called Trouble Knows Me, which was uh, a thing I did with Madlib um, back in like 2015. We put out like a fat single, just like two and a half songs on a, on a LP and then we had talked about building a record and I wrote all these songs, but then it, it just never kind of came to fruition. And I was, I was like, uh, yeah, I just wanted, I wanted the world to hear, or, you know, our fans to hear this stuff that I'd worked on really hard. So it was really cool to finally, it felt like a great weight released off my chest uh, to finally get these songs out. Cause they really are from a period of my life that isn't, isn't really documented. They're about 
parts of my life that I haven't really talked about before, which is something that, you know, rap allows me to be very, very direct about my life and speak about things that I don't really speak about through Future Islands. Because with Future Islands, like, I don't want to say some things that are maybe a little fucked up because I know that, like, if the guy's parents are going to be listening, <laughs> you know, it's like somebody's <laughs> like Garrett's grand or like, like William's grandma or, you know, what is it? Like, I don't, I'm not going to say this fucked up shit. So, so it kind of allows me to be, to be even more personal. But if you're like a future islands fan and you know, some of my chronology of my life, because I'm, because it's very autobiographical in future islands, then you can actually listen to Hemlock and get an understanding of a deeper look into some of these, these things that I've sung about in, you know, it's like, you can hear seasons. The story behind seasons is on the fall collection like it's there you know the the story behind tin man and long flight it's it's on the fall collection you know because the the pop form man i'm really talking jenny this is but this is how i am oh i, I love it i love it <laughs> but you know the the pop form you get like maybe 16 lines you know maybe 24 lines to write a song and i think within within the the rap form and and prose using it in a different way, you can really just expand and, uh, and I don't know, just be, just be more descriptive and, and, uh, and get deeper into things, get, get deeper into wounds and things like that. So, so yeah, but I, thanks for mentioning the rap record. Cause nobody heard it. <laughs> it came out without, without a peep and, uh, it's just out there. So, so maybe this will drive some, hopefully this will drive some people to listen. Exactly. And also, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I'm curious whether you feel like uh, what you said about getting too personal and stuff for future islands, like what I'm hearing there, as well as this idea that you don't want to project your more personal things onto the whole group. Whereas when it's just your thing, it's like you can go a little bit farther into your specific zone and not have it need to be as representative of the band future islands which is Precisely. these guys that you've known forever and you know their stories and their families and but it's interesting that it's under a under a moniker it's under an alias a, a stage name yeah you, you got me <laughs> but also i i know that you know i read that that's a pseudonym that you've been using a handle that you've been using for a very long time right tell me about Hemlock Ernst and how when you started first using that that moniker is like as a kid, right? Yeah. So I started the first time I ever used Hemlock was on a online message forum uh, for Ozone Music, which was a short lived record label out of New York, which is kind of it. I don't think it was the same people from Def Jux, Definitive Jux, but I believe it was like kind of adjacent to and a precursor to Def Jux as a model, you know, they put out a record that was really, is still very influential to me called uh, Tragic Epilogue by uh, this group, Anti-Pop Consortium, who I believe are making new music again, which makes me so happy, but a group of three MCs and producers who just kind of broke the rules of what uh, rap could be, you know, and- uh, This is like late 90s probably, right, or so? Yeah, late yeah. 90s and in uh, the beginnings of the 2000s. I think the last record they did was maybe like 07. They might've put one out in 2010, but I think it was 07 was the last record. Tragic Epilogue, I think came out in 99, 2000 is like their debut album, but I think they had put out some things before that. And yeah, they were just doing something different with the art form. Um, it was very, uh, you know, like an aggressive poetry driven, a little bit more like 
acidic and internal intestinal, you know, in, in their form. And yeah, and I like they, they were just so influential to me as a writer and made me feel free as a writer when I was young. But so anyways, there was this there was this uh, music board that I used to read. And this would have been, you know, 99, 2000. I used to be on and and people would just put up raps and then kind of critique each other or like they, you know, somebody would put something and then somebody else would like rap off of it. And sometimes it was more like traditional rap or ghost face style, you know, descriptive. And sometimes it was more poetic. And I kind of around that time, I wrote my first like poem and I posted it up on the board and and the you know the poem I was but my freshman year of high school and I was uh taking Latin <laughs> because I'm an idiot <laughs> that's the kind of kid you were slash are right I'm, I'm gonna know all the languages and uh <laughs> or none um which is the way it turned out and then uh you know, so I was I was learning about like Socrates and the the idea that he was uh, exiled for his thoughts and he could drink the hemlock poison or he could be banished from, you know, the city that he loved his life and and he drank the poison. And I was like, you know, my poem is just like, was it suicide or was it murder? And then I signed it like hemlock, the poet hemlock. I'm sorry, I'm picking on myself, but but I, I posted this, I'm like 14 year old kid and I got props on the board and it really made me feel good about myself. So I can, I continue to like contribute as I was like learning to write onto this board. And then of course, you know, the label went defunct and the board disappeared and, and all that. But then, so Hemlock became my original writer name. Uh, although I like my graffiti name was Psalm. So I also, you know, kind of would rap but I, but you know i didn't have any projects in uh in high school it was just like freestyle battles and getting together with friends like i have tons of old freestyle tapes and things like that but never wrote never like actually wrote a song and then when i went off to college i met william and uh, we started our first band art lord and the self-portraits and then art lord my i had played this character who was the self-proclaimed german lord of art and his name was Locke. Ernst Frost, that's hyphenated Ernst Frost, which was which was John Locke, the religious writer, uh, Max Ernst, the surrealist uh, painter, and Robert Frost, the American poet. So, so it was kind of this character that I had brainstormed, and it was the ideas of like religion and art and uh, visual art and poetry into this character. And so then after Art Lord, which lasts about two and a half years at the beginning of Future Islands, I did some of my first, I, I was, I had some rap projects in between there. Between Art Lord and Future Islands, I had a short-lived group called Square Bones uh, that was a very strange, kind of very much like anti-pop consortium, a strange rap project that was like, uh, what do you call it? The thing that's controlled the theremin. It was like a micro a theremin and a MPC. It was two, two uh, musicians and then me. And usually I would just write a chorus, like I would write a song with a chorus, and then I would just freestyle the verses, and then we'd go into the choruses. We probably did like seven or eight shows, and then I had a group of my brother called Flesh Epic. Like a book made with skin. That's a, <laughs> that was another very, uh, a very cryptic rap project that was really cool, because my older brother, who, you know, turned me on to not only hip-hop, but like all kinds of music, and continues to turn me on to music, and it's really a reason that I got into into writing and got into performance uh, was my brother. So it was really cool to have a project with him for years. It was somewhere a little bit after the beginning of Future Islands where I did one of my, I did my first solo show uh, like at a warehouse space in Baltimore, just like as an opener on a 
on a show because uh, I had built some songs and and I, they asked me what I wanted to be billed as. And I was like, Hemlock Ernst. Oh, yeah. Hemlock Ernst. So it's, it's kind of a combination of that first writer name and then Lock Ernst Frost. And yeah, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things that stuck because then you get, <laughs> you know, it would take me another, uh, you know, I put out my debut album at 35 and and then you're it's like that hotmail account that you make when you're 12 or 13 and then it, you're still like <laughs> astro boy 420 you know uh <laughs> yeah or it just it spoke to you that was it's a it's a pivotal reference for you it, it, you it know is. perhaps and perhaps in the way that seinfeld is for me or something i don't yeah. know but <laughs> going back to so going back to a little bit even before that you know, before you were old enough to be introduced to some of the more interesting ideas, philosophy and arts and literature and poetry that you, you as an adolescent you're introduced to, like, what was the what were your earliest kind of creative inklings and 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 the attraction to music that was kind of separate from that more, you know, academic stuff? Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if you go far back. You know, the, the thing that I've always talked about with uh, hip hop in general, for me, you know, I grew up in a town of, you know, 8,000 people in rural North Carolina. There was, wasn't, there wasn't a way to, to find music or there wasn't like a show space or a culture for underground music. And it was kind of the things that my brother would bring home. You know, um, I grew up without MTV, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, and, mm. and these kinds of things too. So, but but the thing that the difference is like, my brother was really into, I remember he was like obsessed with Jane's Addiction, which he, he brought home to me, but I never really got onto. Like I, I got really into his Danzig records and Primus was like the first band that I loved. And, you know, and in a weird way, I think it was because I found it like kind of humorous at the time. And years later, I would listen and be like, this music is crazy. Like it's <laughs> it's really wild that I was like bumping Sailing the Seas of Cheese when I was 10 years old, like, <laughs> and uh, and these kinds of things. But, but when he started to bring rap records home, in particular, it was the record was Grave Diggers Six Feet Deep, which was a, which was a record of Prince Paul, RZA, uh, Fruit Quam from Stetsasonic and Too Poetic uh, put together this album that wasn't really like I've I've heard about it more from Prince Paul. Uh, he did a he did a podcast uh, series with uh, my buddy Open Mike Eagle uh, a year or two ago called What Had Happened Was, and he talks about he talks about that record, and it was really interesting to hear him. He's just like, yeah, nobody was nobody wanted to put that record out, and then Wu Tang exploded the world, and then people were banging my door down to get this record that we had made that nobody wanted to put out. And for me, <laughs> I'm like so feel fortunate. That, that would happen because that record is probably the only record that I have ever memorized. Like, you know, my brother, I begged him to like print me the lyrics at school for the album and I just would pour over them. And through the process of, of reading, of reading those lyrics and learning those lyrics, I, in a weird way, this is something I realized later. I think I started to understand how to write. Mm. Does that make sense? You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like seeing the cadences. And, you know, at the same time, I'm discovering Carl Sandburg and Theodore Retka from like the, you know, the my school library has a poetry section that's like 25 books. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. I actually don't know. Is Carl Sandburg and Leonard, who are those people? Yeah. Uh, well, Carl Sandburg is a, 
I would say he's probably one of the great American poets. I mean, in a weird way, he's most famous for this really epic biography he wrote on Abraham Lincoln. But he's interesting because he kind of learned he's one of those Songs of America guys who used to he worked in the fields and in the factories and he rode the trains with the hobos and he would record their songs and their languages and their dialects. And so in a way, he kind of traveled America and brought this and and, you know, it's, some of his poetry is very, it's very standard in that sense, but there's a certain book called Slabs of the Sunburnt West, which is actually, I have a song, uh, a hemlock song that's titled that in homage, but where he talks about, you know, the, 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 the hands of the working, working America covered in coal. And it's like a giant crumbling, like a giant holding boulders in their hands, crumbling them to dust into the valley of the land. And I'm just like 14, like, my mind is exploding. <laughs> Do you know why? I mean, you've reflected on some of this stuff, obviously, at this point in, in your life, like... Do you know why those kinds of things appeal to you? I mean, there's something so very um, natural about, you know, when you're a child, yeah. you know, and that the things that you're drawn to. What do you think is the common ingredient in the things? Is it words? Is it and why do you think sort of that stuff was so appealing to you? Because it does seem like genuinely you were gripped by it. I have no idea. And that is the funny thing is that it is and. <laughs> I've got therapy on Monday. I need to make a note. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm there. There's a lot of things that I could I could speak to because I mean I I could speak to the fact that I think that a lot of art comes from uh, holes in humans, <laughs> holes in humanity, like our humanity. I I feel that part of the reason that I create and the reason that I perform um, and these things are actually like weaknesses that I turned into strength or or tried to tried to create a strength and understanding of feelings of isolation, feelings out of control. Like there's things of my past that I'm still trying to understand that I may never understand because the people that could tell me the truth are not there anymore, you know, like, uh, so uh, I think, okay, I, we're going to get into theories right now. You know, if you, if you go to England and you talk to just an average person, the idea of driving like two or three hours to something is completely absurd and it's a day's journey and it's too far away. But if you talk to someone in America, that's like, that's what we do. It's a part of like, it's a part of our culture, the highway system. And, and, and then if you think about America in far back, you know, we are a, a nation built upon a, a immigrants, people that rode for uh, weeks and months and, you know, and went through great hardship to get to this country. And then some of them got to this country and then they decided to go all the way West. That feeling of movement is like a part of our gen genetic code as Americans. And for me, I'm a quarter Filipino. My grandmother on my mom's side uh, was a Filipino woman. She married a Navy man. They they had a family in, in the Philippines and then they traveled here when my mom was three and a half. And for me, I've never felt at home in where I grew up, you know, like that place, it's beautiful. And of course, of course, it's it's my home, but I never felt like it was where I belonged. And I don't think I've ever found where I belonged, you know, and also because of my personal gen genetic makeup, I never really fit in because it's like, well, you're a white guy, but you look kind of weird. <laughs> like, what, what are you? You know, I don't know how many times I heard that when I was a kid, like, what? what are you? And I still 
you know, I still, I think that that was an early part of me, even as a child feeling like I, I looked different, made me feel different. It made me feel like I didn't fit in. And I, I and I, I'm only now starting to understand it as a, as a little bit more simple than maybe it, it is. It's just like, just being a little different, you know, why do people think I'm different? Because you're just a little different, you know, and that's okay. Like, like that is my strength. That is my strength. That thing that I thought is my weakness that makes me feel isolated, that makes me feel uh, like I don't belong, that makes me feel like I have to prove myself to be in a room or I have to do something to be allowed into a place is that is actually the thing that allows me to, to, to be my own self and to be my own person. So I think I don't think it's a particular thing or an understanding. I think maybe with with Sandberg, I think I I was really drawn to this traveler in him. And, you know, and it makes sense since that's like kind of the first thing I brought up, but this this person who who wanted to hear the songs and understand the land, you know, and with with Retke, it was a little bit more, it was his the way that the way that he spoke and the way that he laid out his lines you know if you read a, a great record poem it rhymes the whole way until the last line and it makes you go Ugh. <laughs> like like he's got you on the hook and then he just digs it in with this thing it's like that doesn't go there but oh you know it, it's and uh but but he was more of a naturalist poet like he grew up in the greenhouse and he he studied the soil and he studied the way the the, the these flowers and the the, the roots grow and and a much more minuscule, you know, like accepting accepting the earth to inform our our human nature and the way that we are a part of nature. So, so yeah, I think I think those poets stick out for different reasons. Reck is one of the most influential writers to to how I still write, um, and is someone who I've referenced many times. Like, there's two Future Islands albums named after Reck poems. Uh, uh, and there's more songs as well. So. That's a person that I've been drawn to, but yeah, I'm going to have to talk to a professional. Um. <laughs> but it's also, it's also something as even smaller than that is the, that choosing words Yeah, that you, you like choosing the right words. You like looking for a way of saying something, that image that you mentioned earlier from Sandberg of the grab at the, with the fists of, you know. And so when you started to tap into that, when you wrote the poem that you posted on the message board or whatever, like, did it, did you become obsessed with it? Like, what was, what happened once you started writing? What was kind of the journey of like, just refining that and really just embracing it as, as like a craft that you were starting to learn? Well, first off, with the, with the posting the poem, what I got back was, was a, was a, a validation. It says, Hey, this is nice. Obviously, I think these <laughs> these guys, well, for me, they were like grown grown-ups, you know, or these people were grown-ups, but they were probably just a few years older than me. But I think they could recognize that I was was probably a younger kid. And uh, and they gave me a validation that allowed me into a room. You know, it was kind of like I'm coming, you guys are all in New York, or well, actually, I don't know where you are, but I'm here in rural North Carolina. This is what I have to offer. Hey, good job. Keep it up. That's all I needed, you know, and that made me feel like, okay, I'm allowed in the room. Like, what can I do next? And so I think it was that that kind of gave me uh, a push initially. But then, you know, just the obsession with, you know, after Gravedig is six feet deep, it just became an obsession with uh, pawn shop hunting CDs. And I used to, you know, I used to transcribe, uh, I used to transcribe 
uh, lyrics. You know, I used to, I remember transcribing um, Karis One songs from his uh, self-titled album, which would later be the first thing I ever freestyled over. And, and once again, you know, through that process, I was learning about like how to write a rhyme, you know, by transcribing someone else's words. And then, you know, within like a year, within a year, my brother like came back from college and he brought more music and he he had started to freestyle more and then he brought freestyle to me and he like taught me how to freestyle. So within that, within a year's period, I, you know, uh, started to freestyle and that I remember the day I came home from school and was like, I'm going to do it today. And I put on Keras one and, and I like got into it and I, I probably rapped for like off the top of my head for like 20 seconds. And then I just like jumped on my bed. I was a child. You know, I'm just like, I did it. What was the key thing that your brother told you as the sort of main formula for if you want to freestyle, here's what you got to do? It's really simple. He said, um, you just have to start and don't stop. <laughs> and it's true. Like, you know, it's the thing is, is like freestyle is so important to me because when I there was a time I'm I'm not. I'm not up on it anymore. I can still freestyle, but it's not, I'm very too self-conscious. The filter is, the filter is a little closed, but, the, but when you do it a lot, you get to a place where you're just so open and free that you're, you're like seeing lines before you're saying them, you know, you're seeing ahead and to be able to, you, you capture that on tape and you listen back later, like, I can't believe I said that, you know, there's, there's a joy in this, um, in this really free process, which allowed me to learn about like really free writing and then kind of uh, processing things afterwards, how how that kind of subconscious flow becomes is uh, is your brain piecing things together that maybe you don't even really recognize or understand. And then I got really interested with that. So there was a lot of things, but yeah, my brother was just like, you just have to start and then don't stop because you need to, you, you need to not be afraid. And, and that's the thing, like once you kind of break that wall, you you open something in yourself to feel to feel free, uh, and you're connecting with things that are like really outside of yourself in this in this beautiful way. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's it feels, especially back then, it felt so. I hate to use the word. It's a cosmic stew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like like like, you know. And and of course, you know, when I was a 14, 15 year old kid, the thing that I was rapping about was like way over my head the, the cosmos and and nature and you know uh this you know it was a very like hippie hippie style in, in the sense of like this this connection to nature and the mountains and the rivers and and you know i am a part of all of this you know uh i used to you know i didn't just used to tag psalm i used to tag psalm the prophet which is hilarious to me that i was like a 14 year old kid calling myself the prophet because that was that's that's who I was. I was like, I am this whole newborn thing. And the thing that this that this art form gave me, hip hop, and then I was learning to write. I was writing poetry at the same time. Was it gave me a voice and a it gave me an identity that I didn't really feel that I had. It made me someone different than the people that I was around, and not in a way where I was like, I feel different than you. This is like this is something that I can do that sets me apart that makes me feel strong. And especially with rap as an art form, it gave me like an armor against that world that didn't understand me because it made me feel like I'm, I'm strong and I can speak, I can speak these really uh, deep things about myself and feel strong about it. That's what I was getting out of rap that was important to me was more about like 
stories of struggle told from points of strength. That's like what KRS-One gave me when he was just, you know, talking, I mean, he's like rapping about being homeless essentially, but that drive, it just gave me strength. And it, and it also showed me, uh, rap music showed me a world that I did, I, that I wouldn't really know about, or like, like one of my favorite records of all time across genres is a uh, goody mob soul food. And just like hearing about, and that, that's a song, that's an album that's all about, you know, the, the struggles of where they grew up and how they grew up, but the soul that's in it, it's just so deep. And the writing, it just cuts so deep. Like it's still, it still hits me this day. And to be able to create something that's that classic, that really captures an emotion. I mean, that's, I mean, that's still my goal. You know, that's still my goal as a writer, which, you know, it's always, I think it's always funny to people like <laughs> future islands fans. They're like, what do you listen to? <laughs> like, you know, uh, I'm just listening to rap music. You know, these are these this is poetry to me, you know, and this is it, it just it's it speaks a lot deeper to me than like the things that I that I would hear on on the radio when I was a kid. And, you know, I my MTV got shut off when I was like probably seven or eight. So, well, I mean, you know, because I grew up playing sports and then that was kind of, you know, when I was like 12, 13, I was like, is this my identity that I play sports? Because I'm not I mean, I realized like. I'm not going to be a professional athlete, you know? And then I was like, maybe I'll smoke some of this weed and see what happens. <laughs> and then I'm like, I think I smoke weed. <laughs> You're like, Socrates, fuck. Fuck yeah. soccer. I'm in a soccer team. How did it evolve into being being able to see what you were doing with music as like in the band format? Like, you know, how did Art Lord and the Self-Portraits, like how did, you know, how were you persuaded to start singing and to do music in a kind of a different feel? I mean, that's that's it's something I've always joked about because William, uh, you know, I, uh, me and Garrett went off to college together and then uh, me and William met first or second day of classes. And uh, just immediately uh, there was like a spark of inspiration and creation between us that we like recognized. And then we like were, you know, within a week, we were talking about what putting a performance art group together. And, you know, William expressed that he really wanted to start a band, but and I was really against the idea. Like, I was like, I'm not a band guy. Like, I don't, I'm not really into bands. I want to, you know, I want to find a producer to make, to make rap music with. And then William shared with me, like this crazy uh, CD that he made when, when he, uh, over that summer before our freshman year of college that was called Computerness. And it was like a 30 track album on one of these, like, was it like a three or four inch CD that they they like would hold like 22 minutes of music he uh gave me one of these cds with handmade art and i listened to it and it, it sounded like it sounded like Kraftwerk made an, an album on an old apple computer and then just like set it on fire and i was like this is the coolest thing ever. i think i can rap over this you know like that was my thought was like this kind of has a beat and then you know we were we we're talking about a performance art piece and then and then it be kind of became you know I, the the thinking that music could be the the medium for for that piece and kind of like grounded so we could you know play we could do our performance art at like a party it we need a venue to do these performances like we can do them on the street we can do them on campus or we can do them at a party and then it was kind of one of those things where we just like wrote a few songs and it was we we're gonna have some fun and we played a party and then people really liked it and we got invited to play another party and and it kind of took off from there but uh or just kind of it just kind of kept rolling we kept writing and then before I knew it, I was just like a singer in a band, <laughs> which wasn't really, wasn't what I wanted to do, but it also wasn't our traditional band, you know, because to me, bands were guitars and drums um, and whiny. 
you weren't rhyming you were you were singing yes i was singing but it but it was it was uh really bad it was a little bit more mechanical singing in the sense that there probably was a little bit of a staccato more of a staccato flow to it but a flourish it was not it, it was not hip-hop by any means um or rap by any means but but yeah i mean we wanted to be we we, we wanted to be craft work that was the that was kind of our at the time like our mountain we were trying to climb and, and we, you know it was three keyboards and a bass guitar so there was like a punk feel to it because it was none of it was our gear it was all like borrowed things you know it was fun and then i really found to join it but i was also freestyling so those early art lord songs and shows i once again was like writing a chorus and then just kind of freestyling the the verses and then we like i would signal the guys and we go to the chorus and <laughs> so it was all it was kind of this free and improvisational so a lot of like i mean that's the interesting thing with you know with uh the band with future islands is that me and william and garrett we you know started writing together when we were it was right before my 19th birthday and you know what garrett had never garrett had never played a keyboard before he was a guitarist and william had never played the bass before he was a guitarist and i'd never sang before like in a band i could sing i knew i could sing um it was something that I loved to do when I was a kid and, and uh, singing with my mom and stuff like that. And, uh, but I wasn't ever in like choir or, or you know, or, or uh, things like that. Um, but I knew I could sing, but it wasn't, yeah, it just didn't, it didn't have the same appeal. And then after time, when, after, after Art Lord's first year, we really started writing songs that weren't like silly conceptual, you know, um, I shouldn't say silly, but based around the concept and trying to bring a message and then it, it became a little bit more personal and we got better at our instruments and we we had a better chemistry together and then that's when it felt like i think we really were actually doing something you know this isn't you know and we were getting to play, we got invited to open a show at the local bar and then then the local bar saw us and then they were like come back and you know do your own show and so we became like a staple within our college town and uh you know it's kind of i mean i remember we were making like two thousand bucks a month we would play the the local bar once a month and get paid wow we're like this is crazy i mean i'm i i think the statute of limitations is probably up now uh 20 years ago <laughs> but we were like 19 drinking you know at the local bar and uh because they just assumed that we were adults <laughs> because we're selling out the place we're like uh we're children uh we're, we're still children. <laughs> close yeah, enough yeah. close so enough. <laughs> so it was like i don't know it kind of really naturally came and naturally came about but but uh i think that in the improv side of singing for me is is you know informs the style my my personal style although you know i because i feel like my style is is like draws from a lot of a lot of soul and motown is as well as like you know, uh, Morrissey, <laughs> but it, it's all like, it's once again, you know, like I'm, I'm a hip hop head who got into this. Garrett was like a metal head who got into this. And like William, William really is the eighties kid who wanted to make an eighties band. And he, Garrett, I've always joked, William won. <laughs> William essentially got what he wanted. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's crazy that we're still, we're still here. So obviously, it you know you start it started strong. I mean, and then by the time your future islands, you know that you can write together and that it's a good that it's a good unit and that there's something new to do with this combination of 
of people. But w- beyond that, when did you feel like it started to get good? When did when did you feel like Future Islands was hitting a stride and that you personally were like, I know what I want this this persona to be. I know what I want this project to be. Uh, it was really when we first got to when we first got to Baltimore. So that was that was uh, in January of 2008. I got to Baltimore. William got there around November of 07. And then Garrett got there about June of 08. Initially, I called William one day in 2007 and said sometime around the beginning of 2007 and said, hey, you know, I don't think this band is going anywhere. And I am tired of just playing the same because I was so these things are so layered. I had left Greenville, North Carolina, where we went to college because I had a a really bad drug addiction. Uh, And I I went back to my parents' house and told them that I was, you know, a coke addict and I needed to for them to take my phone and my keys and like, (laughs) hold me hostage so that I could get clean. And, and uh, they did. um, And they helped me through a time. And then um, and then I moved, I moved like as far across the state of North Carolina as I could while still being in the state of North Carolina, I moved to Asheville, which is about five and a half hours from Greenville. And, uh, and so we would continue to play like over that year. So this was, I left in, I left just like four or five months after Future Islands began. And then uh, I was living across the state in Asheville, trying to live a healthy life, you know, working and supporting myself for the first time with a partner out there. And then uh, we would play, you know, every few weekends we would do like a four or five show run. And but we weren't ever writing new songs because I wasn't around. And it just kind of that year felt really like a down year. And and I was missing the excitement. And I felt like, you know, well, I've I failed out of college. I have no skills. I'm like a recovering addict. And there's only one thing that's that's like been there for me. And it's music. Like music's the only thing that's still there and there's still like that that I think about that brings me joy and there's like a potential in my life. Because I just felt like the ideas that I had of my life when I was 18 were all gone. I had like squandered them or so I felt. Um, so so I called William one day and said, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to move to Baltimore and start a new band. I think because we had a lot of friends, like Dan Deacon was a friend we made through him touring through through Greenville back in the day. And then we just felt like a kinship. So then he would come down and tour through uh, North Carolina and the South with us. And then we would go up North and do little tours with him and just like felt a shared spirit of the way the like things that we found joy in making music. And, uh, and then, so he, by that point he had moved to Baltimore and was really urging us to come and be a part of this fledgling scene, the, uh, the Wham city collective. And I, and, and, you know, it was all of our friends. Nobody was like, Nobody was like crazy successful, but everybody was in bands that played all the time. And they, you know, they they were able to create and work like a day or two a week and get by, you know, and then go on tours, you know. And and I was like, that's what I want to do. So so I called William and said, I'm, I think I'm going to move to Baltimore and I'm going to start a new band because I really this is what I want to do. And then William's like, I think I want to do that, too. Let's start a new band. <laughs> we're like already in a band like, cool, let's move to Baltimore, and start a band. So then, uh, you know, William beat me up there and then I went up. So anyways, Garrett went through a breakup and then we like convinced him that everything was like amazing in Baltimore and he <laughs> he moved up. But the thing was like, so when Garrett got there, we didn't have a drummer. It was the three of us. You know, we had, we already had one band that failed, you know, Art Lord had failed and the band ended and we started this band, but then I left town 
there's all there's always somebody to blame essentially you know they like you can always be like well if so-and-so would pull some weight or you know and, and that's not fair because we're all just kids but it's just like there's nobody to blame like it, do you want it I want it. Do you want it? And it was kind of like where we all linked up. Like we're all here for a reason. We all came to Baltimore to make this music our life. And within the first few weeks that Garrett was there, we wrote an apology and we wrote Long Flight and we wrote Tin Man, which were all like staples for our first album, or I'm sorry, our second album, In Evening Air. And that and the, writing those songs was when it felt different. And I think it was also like boiling down the elements because like William and Garrett were always the key, you know, like William and Garrett were all always had this connection in the way that in the way that they played together there. And, and, and it was the thing that they it was the things that they played that would pull something out of me as a person who was like, I don't want to be in a band. And I was like, but I, but this is dope. <laughs> you know, I'll sing over this. You're like, uh, Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, this is mine. Um, so when we, when we had to just be the three, and you know, and this allowed us a lot of freedom that actually helped us a lot because, you know, that year we would do our first U.S. tour and we didn't have to have like a fourth mouth to feed, like space for a drum kit. We didn't have to, like, it was like pared down as much as possible. It's easy to travel. You know, there was one keyboard case and one bass guitar case. We could go anywhere and everywhere. Like we once did a tour with our buddy Adventure and it was the four of us, we were opening for Adventure and there was four of us in a Volkswagen Golf and we toured the US, you know, uh, uh, keyboard cases across the laps of the people in the back seat <laughs> and like some things tied to the roof. We lost our roof uh, bag in... Uh, outside of San Francisco one day on the highway and we had to turn around and get it. And and I mean, you know, the ability to put, you know, two bands, like a whole tour in a Volkswagen Golf is is uh, kind of amazing. Also insane. We were insane people. But so we wrote those songs and then we went on the road from July of 2008 until November of 2012, like four and a half years. We played almost 800 shows. And over that time, we we would also, you know, we we wrote uh, in evening air and then recorded it. And then we wrote on the water and recorded it all while touring and touring and touring and touring. So, so like that time, that, that five years is really like the galvanizing period of what the band is and still exploring. Yeah. Like what, what are we capable of, you know? Yeah. And so then all those, and all of those forces and efforts coalesce it, it, leading up to singles uh, then. Yeah. Were you sort of, did you feel like before that album had the impact that it had? Did you, did you, did you feel like, oh yeah, this is a really good one. This album is going to take us somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah. We really believed, we believed in that record. I mean, in a weird way, it's so vastly different than the record that preceded it in a way that's it's when I look back it's a really interesting movement I mean a lot of the reasons that uh it's funny because on the water got pigeonholed as a concept album and that bothered us because because a, a lot of the reviews for it were that it was like the concept wasn't fully realized and we're like it's not a conceptual album but somewhere along the somewhere along the press for the record it got it got put out there was a conceptual album then that kind of got picked up so that so then singles was a concept album and the concept was this is not a concept album <laughs> and the 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 concept was there aren't going to be like 
you know, in, in our in our first three albums, there's a lot of like not not interludes, but interstitial music there were, or like things like tales to songs like that are field recordings and things like this. And with singles and we were like, no, we want each song to be its own story, its own just just its own single like these. This is a group of songs. This is not a this is not a journey, which was the thing that we have tried to create in the past, which on, you know, this uh, new album. Uh, people aren't there anymore is is back to a journey album it is it is a movement through space and time of uh, a, a person going through the world and and understanding it <laughs> me <laughs> really from from uh from my my own uh biographical info but yeah like with singles we were trying to really boil it down pre precisely um and boil down these songs to to like their strengths but we'd never really done that before because we'd never had time to write a record you know because we'd always been uh you know the, the way we used to write albums was we'd be on the road for a month and a half and we'd get home and we'd have about three weeks off so we'd go and we'd write a song or two and then we'd go back on the road and we'd start we'd play those songs and sometimes they'd last two shows and sometimes they'd last the whole tour and if they lasted the whole tour then they found their way into the set and then we'd get home again after that month and a half and we'd write a couple songs and we'd take those out on the road and then after a year of touring there'd be five or six of these songs that were like really well honed on stage that uh that we already saw that really worked and then we would take those into a studio well a friend's uh living room <laughs> where he set up studio equipment um and we would record those songs while writing the rest of the album when we made singles, you know, we had kind of hit the wall um, at the end of 2012 after like four and a half years of straight touring. And we we needed a break, but we also could afford a break for the first time. Because, you know, the in the beginning of the, in the beginning of that in 2008, we were making like, you know, 10, 20 bucks a night, you know, playing in Kansas City to. To, to drive to Lawrence and you know you're just like putting the you're putting 20 and 30 bucks together at every show just to make the shows you're not making anything and then by the end of it we were actually able to uh to come home and like uh pay our bills you know but it was it was that long that long process so by the end of it we we're like we felt that we had we already felt like we made it I mean that was the thing was the goal was always to live off the art the goal was to be able to to make the albums and and play the shows and feel like really that we were earning our keep you know like like you know when you sweat for your work it feels it feels honest <laughs> it's like you know i used to work construction and there's like there's like a pride and like i ain't getting paid shit for this but <laughs> you know but uh but yeah just like just coming from a hard-working background you know just just putting in that work so at the beginning of that, it was the hope that we could achieve that. And then by the end of 2012, we had achieved that. And we, when we went to make singles, that was a really freeing experience. Um, because, you know, in 2010, I was mad that nobody cared about. Well, not really, too, because an evening air did really well for us. But like with On the Water, it just kind of went under the radar. And we were so proud of this thing. And then we thought we were building on something. And then nobody really cared. And it was kind of deflating but we continued through that feeling that oh nobody cares to get to the you know another year and a half of touring and be like oh it doesn't matter like the people that are coming to the shows care you know and we're we're giving them 
uh, all of ourselves and and they're still coming back and they they and we're, and we're hearing from people how much the music means and that pushes us forward. So we'd gotten to this place where we didn't really care about the broader industry or the or the press machine to like support what we were doing. We we had ex we got to a place of acceptance where like oh we're working artists like we're we're going to be like a journeyman a journeyman band and and uh we can do this you know we we made it <laughs> we made it and then <laughs> and then letterman happened and and everything exploded but but making singles we were able to to kind of go home and figure out what life was which was also very confusing you know it's weird to be on the road for 5 years and then have to be somewhere for a year um and and be like i'm so disconnected from what this what my world is you know and that was kind of the beginning of me traveling all the time you know because I'm, I'm never as, as much as like I have a room in Baltimore but I'm just never there you know it's like my stuff lives there and I pop in every once in a while for a couple of days and then I leave again because that feels normal but yeah sorry I, I'm, I just start rambling no 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 it's great that's what we're here for yeah <laughs> So, I mean, but it's, it sounds like some of it, you're, you're a journeyman band and going back to the Sandberg thing and the traveling and the inspiration from kind of getting to see these places. It sounds like what you're saying is that going out on the road, playing shows has always been just a part of the, of the mission of the project. Cause not all bands do the, the road thing that hard or no. they, they only do it cause they have to do it, you know, but they hate it or it doesn't, it's not something that informs their creative process as much as it is a campaign for the album or something like that. Oh, do yeah. You still feel that, do you still feel that way about about touring that it's sort of part of the artistic kind of it's it's woven into what the band is and, and who you are as an artist? Well, I feel completely different about touring than I did, you know, five years ago and the way I did 10 years ago and the way I did 15 years ago. Like that's definitely an ever changing thing. You know, a thing that really happens that's I don't want to say I used to think it was unfortunate. You know, what happens is, is that, you know, you, you try to make your art, your life, and then it becomes your life. And then you have to, and then it's how you support yourself. And then it becomes your job. And at first, when that happens, you feel like a failure, <laughs> even though you finally accomplished you're you're also like, well, now I'm not a true artist because I'm, because I have to work you know, that it's not for me anymore. It's for everybody else. And then if you get past that, you say, oh yeah, it's for everybody else. And this is, this art isn't mine. It's, <laughs> I think it's interesting because to me, the actual art in, within music is the sharing, you know, it's the way, it's the way that the music interacts in a space and the beauty of live with, with, with people and 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 the way that they're opened or they're closed to it, uh, the way that they're going through things in their lives, or or everything's going really good. Like the way music catches people at a time, or the way they need it, or I don't know. Like it, it's the same way. You're like, if somebody doesn't like your music, it's okay because <laughs> there's lots of other music. You know, and it's like that's kind of the beauty of it. Is there's something there's something out there for everyone and every feeling, um, and, and sometimes. It's just about connecting to those people. And the beauty for us that we found per personally for Future Islands is that when we're able to really connect with people live, it it creates that the, the true art 
of the connection. Because isn't that what music is about? Is about people communicating through something that feels ethereal, you know, and reaches into people and and reaches like songs that reach into people that make them sing songs. Like how beautiful is that to find that full connection? And then, but you know, the other going back to the work thing, it's like there was the time where I felt bad that my art felt like it had become my job. But then I accepted that, hey, it is my job and I'm I'm gonna stop drinking so much and I'm I'm gonna start taking better care of my body because pe people are paying to come to these shows and they they're spending their hard-earned money and they support my life and my artistic uh journey um you know with and within the band they support they support us and I'm not I'm going to I want to take better care of myself so that I can do my job better and that's that's a really great place to get to is like for me so much of the stage is that like the purpose that it gives me you know and uh, the connection with an audience is like it's that once again back to that validation of like yeah you do belong here you know you do have a place and we accept you for who you are i'm gonna <laughs> almost like about to cry you know um but it's that yeah that 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 feeling of purpose is fulfilled through that but that's a life's that's like half of my life's journey has taken me to to find that place you know and life you know is will keep going which i think is an important thing that I've realized through with making uh, continuing to make albums with the guys is you know with with as long as you are our last album it started to not feel like this is the sixth future islands album it felt like this is like the next chapter in the book and with people who aren't there anymore it feels like this is the next chapter in the book because at this point we are like our we have shared our lives uh with people and 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 i i've really shared my life with people and in the hopes that that sh that good faith of sh sharing emotion and vulnerability and my failures and uh the things that i fucked up you know the things the place the times i messed up will help someone else through those same times um and it has you know and i've I've heard it countless times and for, you know, really singles was the one, you know, there's a song, uh, Lighthouse on singles is really the one that when we put out that song, uh, which almost didn't make the record, I really got a flood of of uh, messages and people coming up to me at shows to tell me how much that one meant, because that was a song for me. You know, that was a song that I had to write for myself to make myself hold on to life, for myself to not give up on life. And then to hear how that helped other people made me tighten the grip. You know what I mean? But also we all go, we go through these things and we, sometimes we have to learn the same lessons over and over again for them to sink in. And I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning and still trying to understand the, just like hum the, this life that we live. Same. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> You you mentioned the Letterman moment, which obviously was the first chance for so many people to not just hear Future Islands, but to see Future Islands and to see in particular what you do physically with your body, with your voice, um, with your words in, on that huge stage for people to know, wait a minute, this band is amazing live. You know, it's like leaping out of the tv set like holy shit you know the reaction so many people had of like 
who the fuck is this? What is this? What, you know, like, I don't know what this is, but Jesus, I'm feeling it, you know? Yeah. I'm curious what that, what that process for you of finding comfort on the stage to be the kind of, the kind of performer that you are now. I mean, I'll say before I let you answer, I remember seeing you at Bonnaroo a handful of years back. We had like some backstage interview and you had mm-hmm. skinned your forearms from like, or something from like sliding, yeah, you know, some sort. And you're like, I don't know. I'm not sure when this happened, you know, with that <laughs> sort of out of body kind of just going for it thing. How did you evolve into that kind of letting go? Well, it, you know, the, there's evolution with uh, my my particular performance just because of the the growth of the band. You know, it's like, uh, it's just the, the stages change. You know, when you're, I was always trying to tell the stories. You know, we came up playing in uh, in houses, you know, and uh, in, in smoky bars and with lots of yelling people. And the root of everything I do is the words. You know, words are, words are my love. They are my joy. And I, you know, I found out at a young age. And the thing is, when you, when you write a song that means a lot to you, it's really easy to perform it emotionally. You know, if you, if you write something that, that maybe you don't want to share, just the act of sharing that it shows in all of your body, you know, it shows in your face. And like, I have a particular way of performing that's probably more driven by like, watching James Brown and Elvis as a kid and then like discovering Ian Curtis and like like seeing freedom you know or or the the un being unafraid uh the beauty of dance or the lack of a true dance <laughs> if we talk about Ian <laughs> Mr. Curtis but it for me you know like in those early days where I had these words that I believed in so deeply and then I'm singing them to a bunch of people who are you know, chugging beers and having a good time and smoking, I had to perform the songs, you know, I had to use my hands and my facial expressions to try to show what, what these, what I was singing about to people that couldn't understand the words. And then that, you know, that became something that, you know, I would be like, okay, I have to go into that place to tell the story. And then, so that was something that I was learning about myself through performance. And then you know, as the stages, well, also what happened, because that was Art Lord. And then with Future Islands, I had to remove this costume. I had to remove this, you know, this fake accent and all the things that I was allowed to hide behind. And finally, for the first time, be Sam, you know, and I had to be who I was. And that was terrifying. You know, I remember that first six months of Future Islands, I was kind of freaked out because I wasn't able to hide behind and say like, this isn't me who's who feels this way or feels isolated or different. And I, I can I can sing these songs and, and hide behind this thing. I had to be like, no, this is how I feel. And that that was really as simple as that time was and uncomfortable. And you know, this is right as I was like getting clean and uh, you know, trying to put my life together, which probably added to that discomfort of like or the depth of that search, which is like, who are you, man? <laughs> like, where did you go? You know, you had you had so much joy just a few years ago and you knew exactly who you were. Now you don't know who you are. And so I was not only taking off one mask, I was taking off this other one that I had put on at the same time. The first song we really wrote for Future Islands that connected me to that is a song called Old Friend off our first album. And that was a song that was written 
while recording that album over three days we wrote little dreamer we wrote old friend and we wrote a song called wave like home which was the, the title track and old friend is literally about me starting to feel like a normal human again who who has a creative line running through them i whisper the tongue like an old friend you know i i see myself in the mirror and i actually see myself again instead of seeing a person that i don't want to see and i'm starting to feel the fire in myself again this is after you know being clean for about a yeah that's just over a year at that point and, and getting that spark was feeling that spark again was was a really important step there but then you go forward you know after letterman the thing was is all of a sudden the stages got really big and i couldn't do this you know small interpretive movements the same way and connect with people the same way like i had to figure out how to you know, I, I needed to hit stage left and I need to hit stage right. I always tell people, uh, you know, when we have people that are helping us on stage, like my goal is to point is to hit every point. Like I want to hit the front. I want to hit the, the front stage left, the back of stage left, the front of stage right, the back of stage right, and everywhere in between. Like my goal is to make sure that if there's a post in front of you at the show, <laughs> you're still going to see me, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And that's where the dance kind of came in and because you know you can walk from side to you can walk across the stage or you can dance across the stage or you can punch across the stage you can kick across the stage you know um and, and you can uh, slide on your forearms across you place. can slide i i call that move the seal um that's, that's long flight that's the seal and so i it's just like finding creative ways to get there but the thing that happened you know the, that that performance is still evolving again because the thing that happened well has happened over the last few years first of all my my knees are absolute dog garbage from years of doing what I do uh as well as like you know I have, I have a torn ACL and advanced arthritis in my right knee so I can't actually really bend it I think if I wasn't injured I would still you know we're just getting older and and this is just something that we're going to deal with like not recovering as fast so so I've had to like find ways to temper what I do. And that's made me go away from the grand moves as much and try to reconnect with that original, that original character, not, not character, but that original part of me and the performance of the songs as they were, as the stories. But also another thing that happened is uh, doing that acting job last year. And, uh, you know, I never acted before. Um, I got the part, but the people were still like, but I think, but we want to give you some acting lessons. You know, we, like you, you're doing good, but I, we think that, you know, this will help. And I, I was all for it. I'm like, please help me. I'm so nervous. And I met with his acting coach for, we did like six one hour sessions and he totally, he changed me in just like a few days and like how I felt about this. And I like going from like, I don't know if I can do this to like, oh, I, I can do this and really made me believe in myself. But he really just taught me to like, about holding my emotions, you know, and uh, he's like, he's like, when we hold our emotions and we don't break them with a smile or a laugh or try to like, you know, play, you know, oh, you're going to be sad. Why don't you crinkle up your face and like fake cries? Like, no, you just like, you just say to yourself that you're sad. You remember that sad and we will see it, you know, it's in your eyes, like are these imperceptible moments of emotion and the way that it lives behind our face. And and we were running the scene, and the first time, you know, I'm cracking smiles, and I'm and I'm like, Haha, like like little laughs, and he's like, "Why are you doing this?" And he's like, "Well, I just feel like the character wants to be vulnerable, or you know, they're freaked out that they're being vulnerable, so they're 
trying to let off some steam, you know, put some humor into it. And he's like, no, I don't think that's right. And it's like, I think that's what Sam would do. I think if Sam was uncomfortable, he would laugh here so that he didn't feel vulnerable. So if someone was playing you, they would do that. But but I don't think that's what, and I was just like, oh, <laughs> I like learned something very deep about myself. I was just like, is this acting class or therapy? What is happening? He blew my mind. Well, the thing was, he made me do it again. And he was like, now don't laugh. Don't even crack a smile. Don't look sad. Just read through the scene with me. And, and we did it. And, and like, I felt everything in me was just vibrating. Like there was electricity. I felt like I was about to cry. And this, this really serious scene that I was trying to diffuse all of a sudden was just like welling up in me. And he's like, how does that feel? And I was like, I feel fucking crazy. I feel all this emotion. And he's like, exactly. And I see it. Like I see it on your face. Like that's what, that's what it is. That's what acting is. And I was just like, Oh my God. So of course I go back on tour like a month later and I started, I brought this back to the stage. You know, I was like, what if I put away some of these grand movements and I, I try to remember what it is to go back and hold, hold it. What if I sit with that emotion? And I, and I, yeah, it was amazing because it was something I already knew, but I'd forgotten. <laughs> and it's about the words, you know, it's about how the words live and how the words make us feel. And you don't have to add anything to them. They, they course through our bodies when it's, when it's, when it's right, when it's true and when it means something. So it was really great to like rediscover that lesson for, for many reasons. Most of all that it's a lot easier on my knees to, <laughs> to allow myself to, to feel instead of feeling like I have to push myself to, to a place to, to reach an audience because I, cause I, I recognize it in the audience, like the audience saw it, you know, um, the audience could feel that emotion or I felt like a, I felt a connection that I thought I had lost when the stages got bigger. I felt it come back again. It was a really, really beautiful. And was that also, was the um, filming the show before you went into the studio for people who aren't there anymore? Let me think. I think the last session I did, I can't remember if it was right after I got done with my, yeah, no, I think it was right after I got off the show. I, I recorded like the last three songs of the record, but uh, there were probably like three or four songs that I had recorded before I started the the tv show and then there were some that i did in between um and there's one song that i actually recorded in toronto in the hotel room i was staying in and the vocal is the, is the garden wheel the last song on the record which to me is like the epilogue of of, of the story the whole story is uh the garden wheel was written between copenhagen and toronto um and all the places in between that it lived as i was figuring out what i wanted to say and what I felt, but I recorded the demo in my hotel in Toronto on like my pro rig, like, or, you know, my travel, my travel rig, which is as pro as it gets, you know, I sent it to the guys and, and, you know, it was, it was time to record it a few months later. Everybody loved the song, but time to record a few months later. And I was just like, I don't want to, you know, yeah, I was like, Steve, is it good enough? You know, like, is it good enough that you can make it work because I feel like the emotions that are, that I felt that day, the way that I sang it that day, I don't think I can ever, I don't think I can match that. Like I can try. Uh, I think I might even take in that a couple of times. And then we were just like, Steve was like, no, I'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it work because it's the way my voice is just slightly fractured on the high end. 
Um, and even the way that this, you know, cheaper mic like compresses my voice, like it adds this fragility to it, this readiness that's like you almost feel like the reed's about to tear. That that I yeah, I you just I, I couldn't recreate that feeling of that day because that song is it is the song that has the most secrets in it, you know, for two people to know. Yeah, that one hits me hard. And it's because of that, it's the goodbye. You know what I mean? It sounds like from what you're saying that the the acting experience did, you know, in the recording process, what was left of the recording process, it did kind of inform a kind of a a fresh or renewed perspective on like the importance of just capturing that authenticity or just that if you're like, I don't, that felt weird, but that's what it's, maybe that's the right feeling. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. I mean, that's, I think that that's been a goal and something that I've talked to Steve about a lot. You know, he's like, I, cause he's always told me like, I love your demos and I wish they, they were just a better quality because oftentimes they have emotions in them that, and that's because you write, you know, you write a song when you're really feeling something, then you record it and it just, it just has a different feeling. And you also haven't tried to like polish up the particular runs or, you know, the way the melody turns or something. And, and it just, it, it just hits in a very natural way that's that's just different it just it just has more of a, of a weight to it because because you're still learn you're still like you're still learning that or you haven't learned the emotion yet you're like you're processing as you're recording um and finding things that you know you go in on a tuesday morning you know five months later you're sipping a sipping a ginger tea and you're like all right Let's do some takes, you know. I thought you were gonna say sipping on gin and juice, but no. Oh, on... no, I should have said no. No, I don't. I don't drink. Uh, I don't drink before recording vocals. Sipping on ginger tea. Labor, <laughs> uh, but I do. I always do. Uh, this is a little secret of mine. Is I I always do a smoke take. So I usually do about seven to eight takes of a song, and then I uh, if if it's feeling like I think we got it. I was like, okay, cool, smoke take. And then I go and I have a cigarette and then I come back and I do it three or four times. And it's really funny with Steve because he's always, you know, he's been working with us for four years now, four and a half years. And in the beginning, you know, and I do need to quit smoking and it does help my voice a lot when I don't smoke. Um, and Steve is always pissed off because he's like, you really need to quit smoking. And then I'm like, smoke take. And he's like, yeah, let's do a smoke take. And then I do it and he's like, it's always the best one. It's the smoke take. He's like, I've worked with thousands of singers and <laughs> you're the only one <laughs> that this works for because they all want to do it because they all want a cigarette and then they have one and their voice sucks and yours always just gets this coating of honey on it. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know either. Smoke take. Well, I think that brings us to uh, I think that brings us to a wonderful conclusion point, Sam. Awesome, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. It's such it's so good to see you again. Massive thanks, Sam, again, for that awesome interview. And you can keep up with Future Islands at future-islands.com. I've also today shared episode 101 with the amazing Brittany Howard, whose new album, What Now?, comes out later this week. And you can catch up on any of the episodes at jennylsq.com. And when you want to reach me, find me on social platforms at jennylsq. Thanks again for listening.